So turn with me to uh, Revelation chapter 10. We're traveling through the book of Revelation. We're uh, taking it on from a futurist perspective. We make no bones about it. A futurist perspective. Dispensationalists, premillennialists, believing in a pre-tribulation rapture. There it is. It's out on the table. And so we've been moving through uh, the Bible, or excuse me, moving through the book of Revelation, which really means a revealing of whom? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and unveiling his plans and purposes for all of eternity. It really isn't that hard of a book to understand from this perspective. Why is that? Well, because you have a divine outline right in chapter 1, verse 19. And all we're doing is we're following the divine outline, okay? And here's where, uh, uh, what it says in First uh, John. Or did I say First John? Okay, Revelation 1, uh, 19. Sorry about that. It's written by John. 96, that's important, 96 A.D. He's an old man. He's on the island of Patmos. He's been put in rock prison there for sharing the gospel. He's going to be let out and go and do some things in Ephesus, but that's where he writes this and finds this vision or has this vision given to him. In 19 of chapter 1, it says, Write the things which you have seen. That's chapter 1. What have you seen? You've seen the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. The second part of that is, uh, and the things which are. What are the things which are? Well, chapters 2 and 3 give you the churches at the time, and we discuss that at length. They're the churches at the time, there's a, word, uh, there's a word to each of those churches on probably a Roman postal route. Uh, seven churches. There are some more famous churches that aren't included uh, in that route, which is interesting. God had a word, a specific word for the church. And he knew what to say and uh, why to say it. And it, rung tr- it rings true even for churches today. And we studied that. There's another thing that maybe that... Uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3 does. It talks about the history or church history, different periods of church history, and we went at that at length. If you have, if you have an interest in that, uh, please uh, get the tapes from that. Also, we see uh, in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, after these things, metatauda. Now, why am I saying metatauda, and why do I keep saying it? So you who've been tracking with us are bored of me saying it or want me to get over or stop saying it. Well, I won't stop saying it because repetition is how we learn. And after these things, after what things? Well, look back in chapter 1, verse 19. And the things which will take place after this. It's a Greek phrase that means metatauda, or that's, uh, that's written out as metatauda. So when you get to chapter 4, here you have that phrase again. After these things, metatauda. After what things? After the church age. So we believe this is a picture of the church that's been raptured, 1 Thessalonians 4, that's been raptured, that's been caught up in the clouds, and this church, or, uh, this church now is in heaven, chapters 4, chapter 5, and that's a picture of what we'll be doing in heaven for a seven-year period of tribulation, all co- also called Daniel's 70th week, also called in the Bible, in the book of Jeremiah, the time of Jacob's trouble. Now, what is that? It's a seven-year period. It's marked in Daniel. It starts, it's kicked off with this person who rises up and solves in some way or makes a covenant with Israel and some others who are threatening her. 
and establishes, it appears, peace. We talked about that. That's from the book of Daniel. And then that kicks off this seven-year period. And the seven-year period of tribulation is really from chapter 6 through 18, but I, I say halfway through 19. Because, so that's where we are. We're in chapter 10. We're in the middle of the period of tribulation. Okay? Now, in chapter 19, what also midway through the chapter, what happens? This is beautiful. I'm going to get a reaction out of somebody. And what's beautiful is the Lord comes back to the earth and he comes with us, the saints, to rule and reign here on the earth. That's chapter 19. Chapter 20 is a 1,000 year period called the millennial kingdom or the millennial reign. And a lot of things happen during that time. And then at the end of that time, and then chapter 21 and chapter 22 are the new heavens and the new earth with new Jerusalem. There you go. That's the whole book of Revelation from a futurist perspective. Okay? And where we find ourselves now is in chapter 10. Chapter 10. Would you go there with me, please? Remember, we're traveling through the seals on a scroll that the Lamb, Jesus Christ, was the only one who could unwrap the the scroll by unhinging or whatever, unsticking, whatever you want to call, loosening the seals. And we get all the way to the seventh seal. And when the seventh seal happens, when the seventh seal happens, that it's like a, it's like a Russian doll. That the seventh seal opens up seven trumpet judgments. And the seventh trumpet judgment opens up seven bowl judgments, right? And so we have now uh, come uh, to, through the sixth trumpet judgments. So it goes seals unsealed. The seventh one, trumpets, seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet, seven bowls. And we've gone through six trumpet judgments, but just like uh, before the seventh seal was unloosed, there's an interlude. <laughs> Do you remember that? When, the, uh, when we got to the, after the sixth seal in chapter seven, we saw, and we had an interlude where we had uh, these 144,000 sealed Jewish evangelists and then a multitude from the great tribulation, all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues in the robes. We had this little interlude. It was God was filling us in about what's happening uh, during the tribulation time, some of the details. And now we've getting, we had the seventh seal, and then we went trumpet, 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 six trumpets, and now we're going to have a little interlude again. And actually, it's a kind of a big interlude. And it's going to revolve around three things or three um, topics. It's going to be around John's vision in chapter 10, this interlude. It's also going to be, uh, uh, we're going to talk about the temple next week being measured. The temple, well, you've got to come back next week. What do you mean the temple? There's no temple right now in Israel. And then also these two witnesses in chapter 11. These two witnesses who are killed and resurrected and then the seventh trumpet comes and then some more interlude period. But we're just going to talk about chapter 10 tonight. All right? Part of the interlude before uh, the uh, seventh trumpet. Now remember, when we left, I, ha- I got to tell you, last week that I taught on Revelation... 
It's kind of dark, folks. Do you remember? There was dark. There was locusts from this bottomless pit in the fifth trumpet. And these were tormenting spirits. Remember that? They were like scorpions. Men wanted to die instead of face them. They desired to die. Remember that part? And these locusts were like horses prepared for battle. And then we had these angels from the Euphrates loosed. And they killed a third of mankind. And that's a couple times now we've seen mass killings during the tribulation period. And you say, wow. Wow, that's heavy, right? Well, okay, that is heavy. I agree. Uh, But remember now, uh, we are in the period currently of the church age. And God uh, didn't come to heal the righteous. He came to heal the sick. He didn't come to condemn now. He came to save. But there is coming a time. There's coming a time in which judgment happens when Jesus Christ starts uh, his agenda in the last days. There is a time of judgment. Remember, we believe that there's going to be a rapture. No more prophecies need to be fulfilled for the rapture to happen. It could happen at any time. It's the imminent doctrine that it could happen at any time. It could happen before we're done here this evening. That's what could happen. And then this seven-year period where God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world and deals with the nation of Israel. Remember, if you want to read about that, you can read in Romans 9, 10, and 11, in which it culminates and says that all of Israel shall be saved. Well, certainly, currently, all Israel is not saved, right? Okay. You're caught up. You know where we are. I'm going to read just kind of this short little chapter, and then we're going to talk about it at length. We were after the sixth trumpet. We're now coming to this. The word of the Lord, chapter 10 Verse 1, I, I, that's John, saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, clothed with a cloud. And a rainbow was on his head, his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders utter their voices. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. Hmm. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the uh, earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. In uh, the King James, it actually says that there should be time no longer, but delay is probably the better um, uh, translation. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angels who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it uh, and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, 
you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So, Lord, we need help to understand what's going on here. What is this, Lord? What, what does it have for us, and how does it glorify you? And so uh, help us to study and to think through, and by your Spirit, guide us, please, into all truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So here he is. Can you imagine? He's on the island of Patmos. He's in uh, amazing, under amazing scrutiny, uh, tribulation, heartache, uh, hardship. Uh, he's been put there to, uh, uh, you know, because he's a, a sharer of the gospel. He won't shut up. He can't shut up. It comes flowing out of him, and he, for that he was put here uh, to spend some time in uh, prison, you know, uh, you know, work prison. And so here he is, and he is uh, privileged now to receive this vision. This vision. And he says uh, he saw still another mighty angel. Now, th- listen, we've encountered several angels uh, during this, um, this time. And, you know, uh, it's interesting, and uh, we don't want to make too much out of angels, although we want to make what the Bible makes out of the angels, right? Uh, here, uh, to John, just, I mean, it is a big deal because he's seen it, but, 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 but they're used to it, you know. They're used to it. Um, you, you know, if you go back uh, into the book of Acts, uh, after uh, King Herod had killed James, son of, or brother of John. Do you remember that part? He ki- killed James, uh, brother of John. And then, you know, Peter, he gets put in prison. Do you remember this? Uh, Peter gets put in prison. Oh, wow, five bucks Jerusalem fun. That's loud. That might be 750 there. <laughs> I, I, don't worry, it happened to me the other day. It happened to me. I called Beck from up here one day. Uh, about two weeks ago. <laughs> but do you remember this in Acts? Um, uh, uh, that uh, Peter there is, um, he, he is uh, put in prison. And one of the things that it says about Peter, it's just really hysterically funny, is that he slept soundly. He's in prison for his faith, uh, but he sleeps soundly. Do you remember that part? And uh, uh, I think this is in chapter, oh, geez, I think it's in chapter 12. Yeah, it's in chapter 12. He's kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Remember this story? Uh, And uh, when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter's sleeping. He's sleeping so much, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now listen to this. An angel of the Lord stood by him. And a light shone in the prison, and he still slept, folks. And in fact, the angel had to strike Peter on the side, you know, bump him and raise him up saying, hey, get up quickly, arise quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. What, what I'm saying here is these folks were used to the angels somehow. I mean, I'm not saying it. They were, right? Uh, his chains fell off. The angel said to him, gird yourself, tie on your sandals. And he did. And he said to him, put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and didn't know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So I don't know. When, when they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street. You remember this. 
Remember this in verse 11. When Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod from all the Jewish people. And so when he had considered this, remember this part, this is, this is laughingly funny. You know why it's funny? Because it's just like you and I. This is funny. The Bible's funny in places, and here it really is to me. He had considered this because I laugh at myself. He came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. Now listen, they were at a prayer meeting. The early church is at a prayer meeting. They're holding a prayer meeting that Peter would get out of prison. He actually attends the home in which they were praying. And as Peter knocked at the door, there's a girl there named Rhoda. Remember this? She comes to answer, and when she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she didn't open the gate. She said, what? And she ran in, this is funny, and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But see, they, like us, said to her, Come on, man. You're beside yourself. You didn't see Peter. We'll go back to pray for Peter to get out of the prison. Right? That's what's happening. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. But then they said something that was interesting to me, and this is the whole reason I brought it up. They said, it's his angel. Hmm. You ever remember that part? See, they were used to this type of thing. They were used to the supernatural. And it seems like in Matthew 18.10 that young people are assigned angels. And I'll let you be a Berean on this. I'm not going to be dogmatic about this. You can talk about guardian angels. Yes, you could debate it. But where does it say that the angels are unassigned from people who are kids? You see what I'm saying? And um, so, so what I'm just trying to say here is that Angels or angelic um, um, performance or things that they accomplished, the early church was used to it. And John here sees another mighty angel. And when we've been here in the book of Revelation, we see tons of different angels that have different assignments. And that's just kind of the normal course of thing uh, that happens. What's funny about things here in the modern church is we have a whole sector of the modern church that doesn't even believe in angels in the sense that they're bad angels. You understand that, right? We have a whole bunch of people who want to believe that Jesus is a great prophet, a great moral teacher, but they don't want to believe that there's these angels that have fallen from heaven and that are there to do you ill. Right? They're there to mess up your walk, mess up your testimony. They're, they do battle, and the Bible speaks about it a, a, a lot. Well, here in... In uh, Revelation, we're talking about, you know, the angelic, uh, godly angels, if you can say it that way. And there's many of them, but this particular angel is a mighty angel. Now listen, I got lots of opinions. Just ask my wife. But this one's tough. There's a split of authority of who this angel is. Half of the church believes this angel right here is Jesus Christ. Half of the church believe this is just a mighty angel in the category of Michael or Gabriel or some powerful angel. Here's why. I'm going to give you some reasons why. And then I want you to be a Brian and pick. Or don't pick. Kind of like me. Well, there's two views. One, this is Jesus Christ. Why is it Jesus Christ? Well, how he looks. If you notice, he come down from heaven in the clouds. That's pretty familiar to, to, to Jesus. And there was a rainbow on his head. Well, of course, a rainbow on his head. That's straight from the throne of God, right? 
We saw the throne of God earlier, and of course, you know the story of uh, Noah and the ark, and that the rainbow is a sign of God's grace, and that he would never uh, do that uh, thing again. And so there's the rainbow, it's on his head, and his face was like the sun. If you go back to Revelation chapter 1, you know, this kind of sounds like uh, the resurrected uh, Lord Jesus, and his feet like pillars of fire, like bronze, right? So there's that. He looks very similar to the chapter 1 appearance of Christ. Um, He has a book in his hand. Some people believe, we're going to talk about this in a minute, some people believe that book is the scroll. And so, who was the only one who had the authority to uh, unleash the scroll or unwrap the scroll or however you want to say it? Well, it was Jesus. And so, um, some people believe uh, that's that, and where he is, right? Look where he is. His right foot, his right foot is on uh, the sea, and his left foot, or yeah, and his left foot is on the land, right? And so what's that mean? Of course, I have power over all creation, this is saying. And so people believe um, that's another reason. Well, look over in chapter 11, verse 3. Look at this. And I will give power to my two witnesses. This is the angel. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So they gave power to, he gave power to the witnesses. So those are reasons why these people believe that is Jesus himself. Now remember, in the Old Testament, he's often shown or appears in a Christophany, a pre-incarnate, appearance of Jesus, he comes as the angel of the Lord. That's another reason. Well, other people believe it's a mighty angel, a mighty angel in the, in the category of Gabriel or Michael. Why? Well, uh, 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 nowhere in the New Testament, in the New Testament now, nowhere else in the New Testament is Jesus Christ ever referred to as an angel. Old Testament? Yes, How about you go up to verse 3. Look at this. No, no, no. Verse 5, verse 6, sorry. And swore by him. This angel swore by who? He swore by either God or Jesus. Jesus had a hand in creation. The one who made creation, this uh, angel swore by him. So people who believe it's a mighty angel said, well, why would Jesus swear to himself? Or why would God swear to himself? The people who love the Jesus uh, view counteract that because in Hebrews, God says he'll swear by himself. Did you know that? Because he doesn't need two or three witnesses. He'll swear by himself. But bear with me here. There's some grammar stuff that leads to the fact that uh, maybe this is a mighty angel and not Jesus. Uh, there's uh, uh, the word another right there could be heteros, which means another of a different kind, but they didn't use heteros. They used alos, which means another of the same kind. Are you tracking with me, folks? All I'm trying to do is to give you the two views of who this angel is that comes down from heaven clothed with a a cloud and a rainbow. So there's many different ones, and we're going to encounter some as we go through this chapter. Is this a mighty angel, or is this Jesus? I'm going to tell you something. i got a lot of opinions. Again, ask my wife. I have a tough time with this one. I go back and forth. 
One day I think it's one, one day I think it's the other. Uh, but we'll go through here and we'll talk about uh, why some of the reasons I believe it's one or the other, okay? So here he is. He has a little book open in his hand. Now, what is this little book? Some people believe this little book is that scroll, but the problem is they use a different Greek word. They use a different Greek word for the little book. They use the same root word, but it's a, it's a definite, different Greek word for this little book. And so, is it a little book that's different than a scroll? Some people say yes, some people say no. Some people believe that the scroll has been unsealed seven times, get it? And that the book has shrunk, whatever, or the scroll has shrunk. And so this is the scroll, and this is Jesus. Other people believe this is a book that is being written what John is being shown. Does that make sense? In other words, it's a book of the vision that John's being given. In other words, it's the book of Revelation. You see what I'm saying? Some people believe that's what that book is. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Some people believe, who, who believe it's the mighty angel will believe, well, yes, it's the mighty angel. It's not Jesus, and he's been sent by, by all authority from heaven. Of course he's going to come in a cloud because he's been sent with the authority of Jesus. And there, he would come with a rainbow, and his face would be like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire because he's coming in the authority of Jesus. And he has this little book open in his hand. Is that the scroll or is that the, the book of what uh, John's been seeing? Okay, we're going to get to a point, I promise. I want you to be thinkers, though. You see, time out. <laughs> That's what I want. I want you to be thinkers, not regurgitators. Okay? And so you're going to stew on this. You're going to chew on this. You're going to think about this. in your, And that's going to become apparent as we uh, move through this book. Or excuse me, this chapter. So he has this book, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Maybe if he's a mighty angel. If it's Jesus, of course. But if he's a mighty angel, maybe Jesus gave him the power to do this as his representative, as his ambassador. And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. Check this out. Turn over to Proverbs 19. I want you to see it with your own eyes. I could just cite it to you, but why not look at it? Maybe you'll even mark it and remember this. Isn't the Bible amazing? Uh, if you get to Proverbs 19, verse 12, look at this. Whether it's Jesus or a mighty angel, read, listen to this. The king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. In other words, what's coming here in this book through this angel that's crying out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. Whoever this is, if it's a mighty angel or if it's Jesus Christ himself, by the way, folks, who want to believe that it's Jesus, Jesus is a lion from the tribe of Judah. But anyway, it's as lion roars, what this is saying right here is, whatever that sound is, they all knew that judgment was coming. That judgment was coming. It's time for judgment. And you say, well, my goodness, that's mean. Well, let me ask you something. 
When you watched the news last night after your head about exploded because you tried to watch something else, Good. That's good. No, but when you watched the news last night, or if you did watch the news, or if you got up this morning and watched the news, or if you read the paper, or whatever, you went online and read the news, and you saw some of the terrible things that happened. What, what do you say? Lord, when is justice going to happen? How does this keep happening, Lord? We, we want justice. Well, the Bible says that justice is coming. We live in a period of grace now, but justice is coming. And when the lion roars, the wrath of God is going to be poured out against all wickedness during this seven-year period of tribulation. Then he's going to come and rule and reign on the earth and set everything right. All the wrongs will be righted, made new. Well, he cries out. Look at this. Cries out. Man, this one's, this one's a puzzler. So he cries out. Seven thunders uttered their voices. Seven thunders uttered their voices. I want to show you something else. Turn over to Psalm 29. Do I know what the seven thunders are? Nope, I don't. But I think there's a, it's a reference... Where it's, it's, uh, the writer or the Lord used this uh, and, and as a reference to Psalm 29. Look at verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. Okay, I think that's a generic statement about the Lord. Okay, so now watch what I do. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. Here it comes. The voice of the Lord is powerful. One. <laughs> the voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Two. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Three. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. Four. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. Five. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. Wow, that's interesting. Six. And the voice of the Lord, although it doesn't say it, but it's the cause and effect, strips the forests bare. Seven. Isn't that interesting? So when you go back... And you see this. He goes, when he cried out, seven, uh, seven thunders uttered their voices. So here you go. This angel cries out with a li- loud voice as when a lion roars. In other words, judgment's coming. Here comes judgment. And then seven thunders uttered their voices. And this is really strange because this is the book of unveiling. But the Lord tells John as he's about to write, so apparently, see see here we get a little glimpse of how John did this. As the visions came, he was, you know, fastidiously and furiously writing down the notes. (laughs) Kind of like when Mike Reynolds is teaching Genesis, right? No, it's a joke. It's a joke. It's a joke. Relax. Okay, so, 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 um... Here he's writing these things down. Seven letters uttered the voices. And I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, no, 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 no. Seal up the things. Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. Who said why? Because the question is why? Why? Why would he not... uh, 
let you know or let John write that down? Why didn't he want to reveal this to you? you? You know what? There's a pastor I know, and he talks about the blessedness of not knowing everything. Hmm. Turn with me to Psalm 131. The blessedness of not knowing everything. Look at Psalm 131. (laughs) Look at the first two verses. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Surely I've calmed and quieted my soul. Not like a cry baby, but the one who does not or is not haughty nor looks upon lofty things nor concerns himself or herself with great matters nor with things too profound for him. Look, you have a calm and quiet soul like a weaned child, not a crybaby. Why do I keep saying that? You see, because there's a lot of people who run around, and, and I, I get it. I'm not, I, I, I get it. Why? 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 And they'll never know. And they'll never know until they get to heaven. Here the Lord says, your eye, don't make your eyes so lofty that you have to look into everything. Don't concern yourself with all these great matters. And I think the Lord is a Lord of reason and uh, explanation as much as he can. And yet there's some things that you're never going to know. See, the question is not why when things happen in our life. It's not why should I believe or what should I believe. You know what the question is? The question is, whom do I believe? Look look at this. If you turn over to 2 Timothy. By the way, I'll read this to you as turn into 2 Timothy chapter 1. In Psalm 139 verse 6, it says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. It's another uh, uh, talk about having to know everything about life and all the things, right? See, here's what I'm trying to get at. If you're always asking why, you're going to be unstable. And I don't think, uh, I'm not uh, telling you not to look into matters and to study the Bible. No, of course not. That's what I love to do. That's what I'm encouraging you to do, be, be a person who rightly divide the word. But at some point, we don't know why. You understand? And so if you get to that point... You know what you're going to do for yourself? It's just you're going to be sad about it, and you're going to be unstable, and you're going to be up and down and up and down. But if you'll learn to do 2 Timothy, I think it's 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1, I hope it's there. (laughs) 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12. If you get to this point, for this reason, I also suffer these things, Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. Look, I suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he's able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. See that? There's a future coming day when you're going to understand better. Right now, the glass is dark and dim. 
But when you come face to face with him, it's going to be clear and open. And you'll be able to see better. You're going to be able to, you're going to get to heaven. And the things that you worried yourself about here, you're going to go, why did I even worry about it? This is so wonderful and so amazing. It's better than anything I could even ask for or think. Why was I even uh, uh, pertaining or, or, you know, preoccupied with, with that? And, of course, people get preoccupied with stuff. I know that. And yet, the Bible says uh, that there's a, I think, what Revelation chapter 10 in part is telling us is that there's sometimes this blessedness of not knowing. You don't have to know everything, folks. You're not going to know everything until you get to heaven. Right? Here, you know another thing I am so thankful I don't know something about everything, although, again, my wife might say I think I do. <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> I have a brother. My brother can fix anything. I mean anything. He, he redid his house, and his house is so beautiful, by himself. He wired it. He's a, he plum, you know, did all the plumbing. He did all the drywall. He, it looks like something out of Martha Stewart. And he bought it out of foreclosure. And he, you know, I mean, it, it's just amazing. He could fix anything. One time he, he uh, bought a, you know, one of those hydraulic wood splitters. Uh, he, he rented it, not bought it. He rented it. And uh, it broke. And he's so, I, I hate to say it, he might be listening, frugal. We'll say frugal. He's so frugal, he messed with that thing until he got it fixed himself. I mean, he can fix anything. Listen, he's got a brother that can't fix, I can't fix anything. I don't even know how to get in my car hardly. I know how to turn it on. I don't, that's about it. I can't fix anything. And, and you know, sometimes when you start comparing yourselves, you start to feel bummed out about it. Hey, how, how come I can't fix something like Dave Dennis? No, seriously. How come I can't fix it? I can't fix anything at my house. If, if something breaks, I ask Jan or Kai to fix it. But you see, I do something different. The Lord has brought me to a place where he said, I want you to be a player of a one-string guitar. See, I tend to sometimes want to do other things, and the Lord just keeps bringing me back to one thing, studying this. And I'm not saying I'm any great shakes. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. But what it is is the blessedness of not knowing about everything. And the Lord just keeps bringing me back and says, just do this. This is what I've called you to. You don't have to be involved in everything else, right? And see, the Lord's done that for you too in some other area. I don't know what the area is. Whatever he's called you to, the Lord's bringing you to that place where he's just saying, you don't have to know about everything. Here it is. Just do what I've called you to do. I think that's beautiful. The blessedness of not knowing everything. It keeps you stable. It keeps you, look, fruitful. Isn't that beautiful? So it's just a different way of thinking this. I come across this. You know what I say? Man, I'm going to drive myself crazy till I figure out what seven thunders are. And yet the Lord's speaking to us and saying, you don't have to know everything. You don't have to know everything. What other things happens when you know everything? You know, sometimes when you're the dad or you're the mom, you're the adult in the house or whatever, or maybe you're a friend of somebody, you know something's about ready to take place and you don't relay it to the people. 
Because, you know, there's an appropriate time to tell them. You don't want to stress them out or make them, you know, anxious or whatever. And so you, there's the blessedness of not knowing. And here, we can freak ourselves out on something that, when we get to heaven, are going to be minuscule, possibly, things. Of course, they're big to us now. Yes, they are. I get it. And yet the Lord, just like Corey Ten Boom's dad said, you know, she, he said, give me the train ticket, Dad. He said, no, I'm going to give it to you when you need it. You, you, you won't need it till we get on the train. See, the Lord is doing that, I think, here. It's the blessedness of not knowing everything. The blessedness of not knowing. Here, he says, Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to seal up the things uh, which the seven thunders uttered and don't write them. Don't write them. Well, uh, he's getting to this place, I think, too. Here, John is saying, uh, or is thinking, is being reminded that there's something coming here, and I want you to pause. Don't be so busy. There's something coming. In reverence and awe, judgment is coming. Well, he says in verse 5, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. We talked about that. Some people believe uh, only a mighty angel would be able to do that. Other people believe because of Hebrews. No, Jesus could do that. Uh, because God swore to himself, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, uh, but that there should be delay no longer. Again, in the, new, or the King James, it said that there should be time no longer, but what this is saying is that there should be no more delay in the judgments that are coming. Now, there have been some really difficult judgments already. You know that. But we learned, and I read it to you, if you didn't catch that, I learn, you learn that there's three and a half more years left as of chapter 11. So it appears that in chapter 10, you're at a right at the midpoint of the tribulation period. So that there should be no delay, and you know this, that the bold judgments that are coming are horrific. The judgments that have already happened, horrific. The bold judgments, it's with a capital H, horrific. And so those are starting to, uh, those will, will be coming soon. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, notice that it's the days of the sounding of the trumpet. This is a long, drawn-out blow on the trumpet, a playing of the trumpet. When he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared uh, to his servants, the prophets. Now, what's the mystery of God? What's the mystery of God? Well, it's hard to say precisely what the mystery is. Uh, I don't think it means mystery in something that you can't find out. Why do I say that? Well, there's several times in the Bible uh, that there's a mystery referred to. Romans 11, the ultimate conversion of the Jewish people is called a mystery. Uh, purposes for the church in Ephesians uh, chapter 3, it's called a mystery, the purpose for the church. Uh, the fullness of the Gentiles, when that's brought in, that's called a mystery. Uh, how about this? The presence of Christ in the believer is called a mystery of God. And the gospel in Colossians 4 is called a mystery. So here, the mystery probably refers to the, just this unfolding 
of the rest of the things that have to happen for God's program to take place. In other words, uh, the mystery that probably he's talking about right here is the unfolding, the finishing of God's plan for all the ages. That's probably what he's saying there. He's about to sound the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. And if you traveled with us in Isaiah, you would know that Isaiah talked about all these things all those years prior to this time. Well, here you go, and we'll end on this. And we got kind of a ways to go, so, but anyway. The voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, "Uh, go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea on the earth. So go take the book, John. So I went to the angel, and I said to him, give me the little book. Now remember, some people believe it's the scroll. But some people believe it's what he was writing down and that this angel had it and that it's the unfolding of the plan. It's the mystery of God. In other words, it's the book of Revelation, so to speak. It's that little book. And he said, I went to the angel and said, give me the little book. And he said to me, something really peculiar. That's not in there, but this is peculiar. Don't you think, except for anybody here ever read Unbroken? Laura Hildebrandt, Unbroken. Raise your hand. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I read Unbroken. Listen to this. If you haven't read the book Unbroken, if you've watched the movie, scrap the movie. The movie's nothing compared to the book, in my opinion. Laura Hildebrandt wrote this book called Unbroken. And one time, uh, Jan and the kids often, when they were younger, not Jan, she's always young, but the kids were younger, they went to Ohio during uh, Christmas to New Year's. And don't tell my boss this, but I got that book when they went away. And that book's really thick. And the first night, I start reading that book, maybe about 8.30, 8 o'clock at night. And I think I went to bed something like at 4 o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, this book, I couldn't put it down. And then I think, hopefully this isn't on the tape, I think I called off sick the next day. And I think I read the book and completed it in about two and a half days. And that book's huge. It's like 900 pages. I don't know exactly. But here's my point. Guess what I did to that book? I actually probably said it to people. I devoured that book. I, I mean, I devoured. I couldn't stop reading that book. It was so, it had everything, fascination, intrigue. So you say to yourself, why here, why does he do this, take and eat? Well, we would say something like this. We would say we devour the book. But he took and eat, and it will make your stomach bitter. But it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. So bitter stomach, sweet as honey in your mouth. You, you know this, right? Let, let me just take you to a couple places, Okay. Let me take you to uh, Ezekiel 2. Go there. I want you to see something about devouring the book. Ezekiel 2, and this is going to take a few minutes, but Ezekiel 2, go there. Fascinating here. Verse 6, Ezekiel 2. You ready? And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words through briars and thorns, uh, though briars and thorns are with you, and you dwell among scorpions. Are you catching this? Don't be afraid of their words or dismayed by their looks, though they are a rebellious house. Sounds like sharing the word, sharing the gospel, sharing about God. You might even get stung, or that somebody might rebel against you. You shall speak my words to them, whether they 
uh, hear, or I thought it said heat, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Don't be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside. By the way, that's another reason some people believe it's the scroll. It's not a book, but anyway, back in Revelation. But anyway, and it was written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. Moreover, he said to me, verse 1, chapter 3, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate. And it was in my mouth like honey and sweetness. He said, stuff himself, didn't he? And uh, uh, if you just keep going on, it's astounding what he did. He went out to the house of Israel and spoke with them. But then look down in verse 14. So the spirit lifted me up and took me away. And I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit. But the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. So he kept going and he kept sharing. I want you to see that. Okay, now... Do me a favor and go with me to Jeremiah chapter 15. Jeremiah chapter 15. That's right before Ezekiel, okay? Jeremiah chapter 15. And uh, go to verses 16 through 18. Your words were found, and I ate them. Your words were found, and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I didn't sit in the assembly of the mockers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because of your hand. For you have filled me with indignation. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will you surely uh, be to me like an unreliable stream? And You know later on in this book... Do you know, I think it's in 20 or 21, he tries to go, he tries to do some sharing of the word after he's eaten up the the words of God, and he tries to do, and he gets embarrassed. Nobody's responding, and he wants to quit, and you know what he says? But there was a fire in my bones, and I couldn't help myself. Do you remember that? That's in Jeremiah, okay? Okay, so what, what am I trying to get at here? Well, if you go back, there's this sweet and sour, this bitterness, this bitterness, right? There's this sweet and sourness when we take in the word. And I want us as people of Calvary Chapel or wherever we go to church, you know, you know what I want. As we study our two-year Bible plan or we do a one-year Bible plan, or I've heard of a lot of people who read through the New Testament every month, as we start to take in the word of God, You know some of the ways in which you can tell that you're really taking in the Word of God? Here's one. I think um, you will be a person who, of you, it's said, the joy of the Lord is his or her strength. That's from Nehemiah chapter 8. What does the Bible say in Mark 12 that we are to love the Lord our God with, you know, heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know all that. And you know what I say when I read that? I'm a smart aleck. But I read that, I say, how? Please, somebody tell me how. How do I love you, Lord? Well, we've been studying it in 
the book of Jude. What are you to do? What am I to do to uh, keep yourself from error and to build yourself up and to edify yourself? You're to build yourself up in your, the most holy faith, right? The Bible tells us to do that. You're to build yourself up. And faith comes by hearing, but not pithy statements out on Facebook or social media. What does faith, how is faith built? It's uh, built by hearing the word of God. And the Lord tells us that we are to love him back by obeying his word. So I say, for somebody who's actually taking in the sweetness and the bitterness of the word of God, the sweet part will lead to people who have the joy of the Lord as their strength. You catch what I'm saying? See, the word can be both sweet and bitter. And we're going to talk about the bitter in a minute, but how about the sweet? Well, the sweet is just... The joy of the Lord is my strength. Well, how do I have the joy of the Lord? How do I build myself up in my most holy faith? Well, you're a person who's studying about the, 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 the uh, character and the things that Jesus did. And you, you want to know. And the Lord uses that by the Spirit to build you up and to give you joy. I'm convinced. How do we love the Lord our God? Well, we build ourselves up in the most holy faith and then we, uh, by hearing the word, but then doing the word. And that's sweet. I, every time somebody goes and starts to learn to serve, I love it. I, it's the same exact quote. It's the same exact quote for 100% of the people. It's the same quote. I went and I expected to bless the people, and I was the one who got blessed. Amen? What? The joy of the Lord is your strength. I'm going to tell you, before I became a Christian, I didn't want to serve anybody. Just being honest. I wanted everybody to serve me. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The word of God is sweet. You know it too. You've read Psalm 119. Just go do Psalm 119 and check off all the benefits of uh, knowing the word. Hiding the word in your heart. Keep you from sin. Revive you. Rejuvenate you. Uh, All these different things. It's amazing if you'll just do it, okay? The word is sweet if you'll take it in. But here's something else. That the word of God does. I want you to catch this real quick. Did you notice in Jeremiah 15 as he ate the words? He ate the words and they were bitter. They were sweet and they were bitter. But did you notice I said later on in Jeremiah 20 verse 9. It says that it was so fire in his bones he couldn't help but go and tell people about God. Remember that? I just told you that. In Ezekiel 2 uh, he, he says the same thing. He was to tell people. In fact, it's so, I, I pointed it out to you. He, he, uh, the Lord told Ezekiel to go and tell people after you've eaten the book, look, tell people who would sting you like scorpions or who would be rebellious and call you names or anything like that. But he couldn't stop. Why is it? Because I think people who take in the sweetness and the love are also going to feel the bitterness and the sting of rejection from people. But listen, here's the deal. They're going to have a heavy heart, a burden. Here's what they're going to have. People who take in the world, uh, word sweet and sour are going to have a burden for other people's souls. It means that they would lay down for them. It means that they don't have to win all the arguments. It means that they would go and do stuff for people who don't even like them. You get it? They have a burden for people. They, they can't even lay down at night. We can't even lay down at night without sharing the gospel with them. You understand? You see, you, could, you see it here in these stories of Jeremiah and Ezekiel that these people who took in the word had a great burden for their countrymen and even non-countrymen. 
They're, they're people and they're enemies. Do you understand what I'm trying to say here? There was a great burden for the souls of people, and that sometimes is bitter. Because quite frankly, there are times when I just want to chill and do nothing, and the Lord puts somebody on my heart or some situation arises, and it's a sacrifice to go do that thing. And yet you have, we have, don't we? Burden for other people's souls. It comes from the Word of God, I'm convinced. Okay, one more. Look at this. There's this unbelievable bitterness as you read the Word in a good way of a conviction of sin. Oh, yeah, you, you like the good parts. The, oh, riches of His grace, I'll be in heaven. Oh, it's so wonderful. But sometimes the Lord will do something, and you're reading this, and you know, you know. It's coming. You, you can just know it. You can feel it. It's like a train hitting you. The Holy Spirit convicting you because your attitude, my attitude, is wrong and improper, and you need to ask for forgiveness from the Lord and from other people, and it's a conviction of sin. How do you tell conviction from condemnation? Conviction always makes you run back to the Lord in repentance. Condemnation means you want to stay away and hide. Like, I can't even go to church. I'm such a bad Christian. That's condemnation, man. Okay, now catch this. Turn with me to Numbers 5. Just bear with me. This is powerful. I hope you... Where's the numbers uh, sermon guy? Where's the numbers teacher? Oh, he's downstairs. Okay. I'm kidding him. He's probably going to run up here now. This is really interesting. I want to show you... I want to talk to you about the concern about unfaithful wives. Yeah, everybody's looking at me like, what? What? Look at this. Just hang on for a minute. I know this is long, but hang on. When you receive the word, there's a joy, a sweetness. It's like honey. You build yourself up in the joy of the Lord. It becomes your strength. That's wonderful. And all the things that the word does through Psalm 119 and everywhere. But there's also this conviction, um, or excuse me, there's this burden for other people's souls. We saw it through Ezekiel and Jeremiah. But there's also a conviction of sin that happens. How do I know we're not just glossing over our Bible when we have the joy of the Lord, when we have a concern and a burden for other people. And here's the third one, and there's many more, but here's a third one, is when there's an intense conviction of sin. What do you mean, Numbers 5? Well, look at this in verse 11. The Lord says to Moses, just hang with me now, verse 12, speak to the children of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully toward him, and a man lies with her carnally, and it's hidden from the eyes of her husband, and it's concealed, etc., there's no witness against her, nor was she caught. If the spirit of jealousy comes upon the man, and he becomes jealous who has defiled herself, or the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, he becomes jealous, then the man shall bring, verse 15, the wife to the priest. Where does the priest reside? This is important. Where does he stay? The temple, the tabernacle, right? Right? That's important. Okay. Uh, Then the man shall bring it to the the priest. He shall bring the offering required for her, etc., etc., right there. Look at verse 16. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. He's going to take holy water in an earthen vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle. That's important. Mark it and put it into the water. And then the priest is going to stand the woman before the Lord, uncover her head, put the offering for remembering her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy. 
And the priest is going to have in his hand the bitter water, bitter, that brings a curse. And the priest shall put her under oath and say to the woman, If no man is laying with you, and if you're not going to stray to the uncleanness while you're under a husband's authority, be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. 20. But if you have gone astray while under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself in some man other than your husband, then the priest shall put the woman under the oath of the curse, and he shall say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people. When the Lord makes your thigh, that's rot, it actually means fall away. When the Lord makes your thigh rot and your belly swell, builderness, hold on, and may, and, and, and may this water that causes the curse go into your stomach and make your belly, belly swell and your thigh rot or fall away. Then the woman shall say, Amen, so be it. Sin will be called sin. Then the priest shall write, look, here it comes. This is the part I'm trying to get you to. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book. In other words, he's writing out numbers. (laughs) And he shall scrape them off into the bitter water. And it's the, the idea here is okay, he's writing out the book of numbers, the curses in the book of numbers, the word of God, and he's pouring a little water onto whatever he wrote with, and he's letting the ink bleed down and make bitter water. And he shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse, and the water that brings the curse shall enter her to become bitter. Then the priest shall take this offering, you know, wave it before the Lord, bring it to the altar, and he'll take a handful of the offering, etc. Listen to this. Then down in 27, when he has made her drink the water, then it shall be, if she has defiled herself and behaved unfaithfully, that the water that brings a curse will enter her and become bitter. And where did the water come? Off the page with the ink. Isn't that weird? He's given you an unbelievable picture of what the Word does. It convicts people of sin. And her belly will swell because it's sour or bitter. And her thigh will rot and the woman will become a curse. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she's going to be free. And she may conceive children. This is the law of jealousy. Don't you understand? What the Word does is when it gets inside of us, when we just don't read it for a, you know, one-year calendar, two-year calendar, just check it off. When you actually ingest the Word, when you take it all in, you see the things that it can do. The joy of the Lord is our strength. We go out in sweetness to people. You know, when people are in a different political party, we don't slam them because they don't believe what we believe. That's not what Christians do. You can believe what you want, vote who you want, put signs in your yard, but don't criticize other people because they have a different belief. That isn't sweetness. That's not loving anybody. Jude says, don't speak evil of dignitaries. We've got to relax in the Christian community and love people, not hate people. The joy of the Lord is our strength as we take it in. We love people, even enemies. The ones who slap us on the face, we turn the cheek and say, slap again. And then what happens is we have a burden for others. Just like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, we can't stop sharing. We may even want to stop sharing sometimes, but we're a new creation, and we have a burden for souls. And then, look, the Word gets into us, and it convicts. Hey, let me give you the happy part of the lady. Let's not go away with the law of unfaithful wives. 
(laughs) Never fear. Jesus is here. John chapter 8. I know I'm going long. Sorry. I thought it was going to go short. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, early in the morning, verse 1, he came again into the... Where did he come? Folks, this is important. Temple. Where was he in number 5? Tabernacle. Tabernacle was the roving uh, temple. He went to the priest in the tabernacle back in Numbers 5. Here he comes again into the temple. And all the people came to him and sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. Just like in Numbers 5. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now, what they're trying to do here is they're trying to get Jesus. They're trying to get Jesus, and you're using this girl as a pawn. How do I know that? Because the man's not there with her. Leviticus 20 says they both should be stoned. There's only a lady here. They're trying to trip up Jesus. Uh, the law says that she should be stoned, but what do you say? And that it's a no-win situation. If he says they should, shouldn't be stoned, what do you mean she shouldn't be stoned? You don't adhere to the law? Well, she should be stoned. Man, you're not very graceful. Okay. And this they said, verse 6, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. Well, look, folks. Where in Numbers 5, what did they mix with the water? The dust at the tabernacle. Look what they do here, or what he does here. He steps down in the temple area. And he writes on the ground with his finger. Listen, it would have been unmistakable to these people. Numbers 5, Numbers 5, Numbers 5, Numbers 5. Just blinking. Boom, boom. We don't think about it because we don't know as well as they did. As though he didn't hear. And so when they had continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, what was he writing? See, the word wrote on the ground with his finger doesn't mean just write. It means to write against. There's an indictment there that he writes. He's probably writing things like, you know, who doesn't have, a man's name who, also, who may have sinned with her or ma- man's name and the hotel rooms that you've been at or the pornography that you've looked at. So when they continue asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And he was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst, there was nobody there. There was nobody there to accuse her. And so he's not doing anything wrong by letting her go. You get it? He had to have a witness of two or three people in order to commit or to proceed in a capital crime. He says this, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I. But, he doesn't say but, but he says, but don't sin. Go and sin no more. And he says, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. What in the world does this have to do with Revelation chapter 10 as we pray and close? It's this. Do you notice what happened to John here? He took the little book, he ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in his mouth. Why was it sweet? Because the joy of the Lord and so many other benefits of ingesting the word of God. 
But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. Yes, it's bitter because you have a burden for the souls of men and women, boys and girls. You also, when you eat it, you're convicted of the sin and you repent and you come back to God. And that's a healthy thing. But look at this. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. In other words, go tell everybody about the word of God here. The things that I've revealed to you, he say, go tell everybody. And John would do it. And he has done it through this letter. Amen? All right, so here's what I guess I'm getting at. (laughs) I took you through all of that. Man, what if we really devoured the word? Not just read it for whatever reason, but we devoured it. And it was the thing that kept us up till 4 a.m., And it was the thing that made us call off work the next day. Don't do that, but you know what I'm saying. (laughs) But we were so fascinated with the Lord, finding him in the word. And all these things, as we eat it up, starts to come back out of us. Where does revival happen? We all talk about it. It all happens here. When people get a conviction of sin, they start calling sin in their life what it is in the church, And then they start praying in groups, communicating with the Lord, the joy of the Lord, enjoying the Lord and communing with the Lord. And also they have a great burden for other people. Where does revival happen? I think it starts with devouring the book. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you so much for this evening. I'm sorry I went long (laughs) to these people. They're so patient. Lord, may we be people who devour the book, not just read it, not just skim over it, but we devour it. But Lord, and then we go out and you give us the grace and the ability and the resource to do the book, to obey you, Lord. Help us, Lord, to call sin, sin. Help us to have burdens for the souls of others and to intercede for them in prayer. And Lord, may you, if you choose uh, not to come back tonight or this week, may you bring a revival here in our land, in our little corner of southwestern PA. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.